are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Have you ever thought, if only I could win the lottery, I'd be better off? Yes. <laughs> Can I hear an amen? amen. <laughs> you sinners. All right. You could think, you're probably thinking I could pay off my student loans. Yes. I could pay off my mortgage, my car payments. I could finally buy myself or my parents that dream car or dream house, right? I could do so much traveling, visit every, anywhere I want to go. I could finally stop wearing cheap brands and really get a nice wardrobe going. You know, it's funny, whenever I ask people this question, whether it's just an icebreaker or whatever, the majority. They, they all have like these essential purchases to make. These essential purchases, and it's in not in particular order, but they say, I definitely need to get a nice car. I definitely need a house for myself or for my family. I definitely need to pay off all my student loans. I need a big and an immediate vacation. And they say, the rest of it I would put away in savings. Now, I don't think most of us would ever consider taking all the money to Las Vegas and putting it all on red, right? I don't think that there are many foolish people here. But then again, I have recently found out that several people throughout the nation have been purchasing all the seats to the theater for the new Star Wars opening day so that they can all watch it Han Solo. I'm sorry. So I guess people certainly do make foolish use of their money. Uh, I found out in Tyson's Corner, a guy did that, the AMC. So good luck finding us a seat that opening day. But all in all, I think in many ways, it would seem that we're quite pragmatic with our money. Not only that, how many of you, right after service, can drive to Georgetown, D.C., buy a cup of coffee from a cafe there? I'd say the majority of you guys could, because having a car to drive puts you nearly above 20% of Americans that don't have a car. And in the world, essentially one out of six people have a car, so that means you beat out the other nearly six billion people. Then driving to a coffee joint, most likely a Starbucks, if you purchase a tall, which is small, but remember we're too hip to use that standard metric like small, medium, or large. But if you buy a tall vanilla latte, which is what I would buy, that would cost around $3.75 with tax nearly $4.00. When many impoverished third world country people make no more than a dollar a day. And yes, many of those nations also have a Starbucks or an equivalent. The fact that you can spend nearly $5 on a cup of joe says something about us. Now whether you feel like you're poor or in the middle, see how I use the word middle, not grande? Wealth is relative. And the reason I'm bombarding your mind right now with this little mini lecture is simply because the text uses a certain word, the word rich, or wealth. And we tend to think that only applies to the Bill Gates of the world. No, it applies even to that hungry college student who lived on ramen noodles for an entire month. By the way, we've all been there, and it was delicious. So considering that everyone in this room is richer than 90, over 90% 90 of the world's population, you need to understand that even though you may not have everything you want right now, Know that pretty much everything that you have right now is what the vast majority of the world wants right now. You get that? What most of you all have already right now, 90% of the world doesn't have, and that's what they want. They want your life. Can you imagine that? 
You're thinking, I wish I could live like him or her, like a celebrity, like the actor, athlete. I wish I could live having won the lottery. But there's 90% of the world saying, man, I wish I could be like him. I wish I could just have a car to myself. I wish I could have my own bed or my own room. It's crazy. Now, one might think, well, Pastor Jay, I don't earn enough. In fact, I live paycheck to paycheck. So I really don't need any kind of proverbial or biblical or scriptural financial advice. Firstly, perhaps because we live paycheck to paycheck means we need financial advice, right? Can I hear an amen to that? But secondly, any advice that would be relevant to the rich must also be relevant to the non-rich too. So what's good or bad for the rich is probably good or bad for the rest of us. Now I'm going to warn you, this specific text is kind of negative, okay? And before you immediately cross your arms and block out whatever I'm about to say to you, I want you all to remember that when it's negative, it doesn't mean that you're in trouble. Turn to your neighbor and say that. You're not in trouble. It means you could be. And therefore, it's issuing a warning out to you guys. After all, if you go to the beach and the lifeguard comes up to you and says, hey, 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 don't go into the water. The water's infested with great white sharks. You wouldn't tell the guard, hey, stop being so negative. Right? This is a warning. There's dangers coming, and we need to be warned. So the negativity here is actually good. Okay? It's actually good. It's beneficial because we warn people we care about. We warn people we love. And so does God. Say to each other, God warns you because he loves you. You believe that? So our first point is that our wealth must never ignore the gospel. Okay? Now, how many people here hate borrowing money? I think a lot of us, right? We don't want to borrow money. So much to the point where we say, you know what? No, I don't have to eat for the rest of the week. Right? I'm fine. I can walk the 20 miles to work. I don't need a ride. I don't need money for gas. I'm fine. I'd say the majority of us, we don't like borrowing money. We hate the sinking feeling that our money has strings attached to it. It's like, it's like if you borrow money from a friend or for something important, maybe student loans even, or for rent, or for a utility bill, but then one day you're hanging out with that friend, right? And then you decide to maybe just buy yourself a little treat, maybe a, a venti coffee, okay, that will cost like 18 bucks. Or you want to get dessert from Starbucks that will cost 18 bucks, Or whatever it is. So you want to treat yourself. Your insecurity begins to creep up and you think they would say, even if they don't say it, well, shoot, if you can afford that, why haven't you paid me back yet? Right? Yeah. That's why we all work long hours and hard hours to be able to say, this is my money. I made it. I can do whatever I want with it. You get what I'm saying? That's what we do. We work hard so we can say, it's my money. Work hard for your money, says McDonald. Right? We work hard and I want to spend it the way I want it. But here's the truth of the matter. While I hope that you all one day, even our college students, and, and welcome back, our, my college babies from their universities here. While I hope that you all one day gain financial independence, and that you all one day have a wonderful salary job, and that you all one day, you don't have to live paycheck to paycheck and you're able to save up and afford and buy a nice car and buy a nice home with new clothes, a vacation or two. As much as I would like for you all to have that kind of independence, know that you'll never be independent from the Lord. You will never, ever, ever in your life be able to say to God, it's my money and I can do with, I can do with it with whatever I want. 
You will never be able to say that. Only God is the one who can say the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Amen? Only God. Now, we're really good at giving certain things like our time or our talents. But when it comes to our money, we'll look through our wallet during the offering time or, or, or some, some t- some, somewhere else or someplace else or some other time. We'll look through our wallets and our purse and we'll skip the 20s. And we'll definitely skip the 50s and hundreds. We don't have hundreds, right? But we'll find that dollar. And if you're feeling especially generous, maybe that fiver. A $100 bill and a dollar bill were having a conversation. The hundred said, man, I've traveled across the world. I've been to France. I've seen the inside of the magnificent Monte Carlo Hotel and Casino. I've been to some of the greatest three Michelin-starred restaurants. I have been everywhere. What about you, dollar? What, me? I've only been to church. Now, there's nothing wrong with spending money on vacations or homes or cars or nice clothes, but you have to consider if with what you're doing with your resources are also consistent with what God is doing in the world. Think about that. And that brings us to verses 1 and 3. And let's t- take a look at the end of verse 3. It says, in the last days, okay? Now, what does this mean? It says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. It sounds like people were doing savings. And there's nothing wrong with having a savings account. It sounds wise. So why in the world does God condemn that? Because it's all in the preposition here. The warning is against hoarding up treasures in the last days, not for the last days. In the last days. And what are the last days? I'll tell you, the last days were affirmed by the apostles like Peter, Paul, John, and the writer of Hebrews. And the last days is between the resurrection slash the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ to judge the world. That span right there is is the last days. And how do we know that? Because Acts 2.17 says it. God says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. These words were preached by Peter on the day of what? Pentecost. And so while 2,000 years ago, the beginning of the world to come had begun, it is simultaneously the last day of the world too. You get that? It has begun, but it's also the last days. In other words, it's ticking. It's ticking down. It's winding down. In terms of the world to come, what does that mean? It means that we've entered a new covenant in Christ Jesus. The day of the messianic community, the day of the gathering of all the elect in the world can come together and worship God. There is an advancing of the kingdom of God, but what does the last day part mean? It means that Satan has already been judged, and now the whole world awaits to be judged too. There's also urgency in the advancement of the kingdom of God, because everything and everyone who is not part of God's kingdom will be destroyed. There is an increase of suffering and pain and destruction indicating that, guess what? Something is about to come. Deliverance is about to come. Judgment is about to come. So we've begun, but we're also winding down. You get that? That's what's happening right now. And even though we could last for another thousand years, we're still living in the last days. That's why the Great Commission is for us to go and make disciples. God isn't saying, hey, wait till you're ready. He's not saying wait till you're about 60, 70 years old. God's not saying wait till your next generation. He's saying right now is the time. Go and make disciples and go teach them and everything. And at the end of verse, at the end of that verse, God says, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. So that's where we're at, people. We've begun, but we're also ending. That's your life. We've begun, but we're also ending. Someone 
interviewed this girl who had cancer, this little girl, and she was about to die. It was it, was, it, was it. There was nothing else that could, that, could, that could be done. So they asked this little girl, they said, how does it feel like, how does it feel knowing that you only have a, a couple weeks left? And she said, I'm okay. What do you mean you're okay? How does it feel knowing that you're a terminal? And she looks up at the interview and says, we're all terminal. It's just that I know it more than you do. We're all terminal. We've begun, but we're also winding down. You get that? Time is ticking. Not to your favor. It's ticking down. We're all terminal, but some people just know it more than others. And that's where we're at. And so God, he's saying this, in light of what has begun, in light of the fact that judgment is right around the corner, he says, what are we doing with these last days regarding our wealth? Regarding the resources that you have? What are you doing with something that can be so easily and has easily turned into an idol in your life? Time is running out. If not in the world, definitely at least for your life. So James here talks about our wealth in three ways. Firstly, he says there's wealth in grain or crops. In other words, if you hoard it, it will rot. The second one, he says there's wealth in clothes or garments. He says if you store them up, they'll be eaten by moths. Thirdly, and lastly, he says there's wealth in precious metals. James says if we hoard them, they will corrode. In other words, he's saying this. Hoarding, being miserly, being greedy, being stingy, holding on to your wealth, will what? Waste away if you keep it. It will waste away regardless. It will do nothing. Do you see the powerful point God is making here today? God is acting in our lives right now in this world. He's moving, whether you see it or not, whether you're obeying or not obeying, serving or not serving. God, he's still working and he's still acting. Why? Because these are the last days. Each day is crucial, guys. Each day is crucial to the advancement of God's kingdom. Therefore, every person you meet, whether it's intentional or accidental, is the person you're supposed to meet. And that means you got to do something significant. That means that every encounter and every opportunity and every moment of your life, physical life here on earth, has eternal significance. Eternal significance. Everything that we have to our names, every resource we have, every talent we possess, every crop, every garment, every precious stone should never, ever be hoarded, but instead invested into the kingdom of God. That's what God is saying. Invest into the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not saying go right now and sell your house or your home or your engagement ring, but whatever. But I'm asking you here, and God is saying, are you living and spending to help? to advance God's kingdom, or, or are you hoarding? And you're saying, it's mine, it's mine, it's all mine. You know, I've been blown away when our members do things to serve one another in the church. I remember our sister Jennifer right now. Where is she? Is she here? She's sick. Oh, no. Where Jennifer, um, she donated money to get this beautiful, strong, modern pulpit. Because before, I was using a music stand that would not exceed this. So when I read, I'm like bending over like that. And it's just embarrassing. But she donated that. And we had this wonderful, strong pulpit here to use. I'm just truly blessed by this wonderful gift. And also last week, like I mentioned before, Ron and Michelle, they donated brand new tent and chair, the camping cook set, heater, and much more for the purposes of future discipleship outings. You know? 
There are others here who have given much to the church and who have given much to one another despite our lack of Bill Gates-like wealth. But you give and you give. I remember Kathy. When she first came to our church, and while still getting to know her, she blessed Grace and me with this amazing food basket. I didn't know she knew that I love food. <laughs> but there it was. When you use your money to serve people, to bless people, to help people who are in need, to those who are in want, it is always a good thing. It is always a good thing. When you live sacrificially and you see that giving up that new Fallout Game 4, whatever, PS something, right? You give that up, that $60 game, so that you can go ahead and bless a brother in Christ who's maybe struggling financially or who needs a hot meal, needs some encouragement, needs some downtime, some conversation with, their, with a fellow brother. Or maybe you want, to talk, you want to invest that money to an unbelieving friend who needs to hear the gospel. Those will be moments that will make an eternal mark. God's not going to say, so how far did you go on fallout? That's why God, he gives to us so that we can give to others. He invests in us so that we may invest in others. Let's be honest here. A cold, hungry, homeless person is more likely to listen to you if you give him something warm to wear and something hearty to eat, right? That's why Jesus physically fed first and then spiritually fed. There is gospel in wealth. Did you know that? There is the gospel in our resources. We can worship God with money, but what we end up doing is that we worship God to get money. When we lay claim that Jesus is God and we have complete faith in him and he is our only hope, God says, then fine. If you really believe that, if you really believe that I am God and that I've sent my son to provide for your every need and to bless you spiritually, eternally, forevermore, then put your money where your mouth is. Then trust me. Lean on my provision. You know what's scary? Verse, verse 1. It says, then there's something that's coming upon us. You know what that is? That's referring to the terror of judgment and the fact that even when we hoard and we use our resources only for ourselves, it's act, it's, it acts as damning evidence that will testify against us on that day when we hoard. As Christians, we're called to be faithful stewards with our resources, but this verse also speaks to the unbeliever, the one who thinks they're a believer. Brothers and sisters and friends, you know this. You can't buy your way out of judgment. You can't work your way out of judgment. You can't talk your way out of judgment. There's nothing anyone can do from God's judgment. But if we trust in Christ, he has freely delivered us from judgment. If we rest upon Christ's death and his resurrection as payment for our sins and believe that God has raised him from the dead, then we will receive forgiveness and eternal life. Hallelujah. Do you know how Jesus saves us from judgment? He does so by redemption. This means he buys us back because we have purchased, or I should say sold ourselves to the world. He buys us back. His blood was payment, but, but, but his blood not only purchased our lives, it purchased everything about us, including what we own and what we do, our talents, our abilities, everything. And he leaves us to our resources so that we can handle our resource, resources, we can manage it, and then he calls us to be stewards of his assets, which he bought. 
You see, when we give, we give as a response to God's amazing gift to us. The reason why we should give our all is because the Lord gave his all to you. I love because you first loved me, Lord. I forgive because you first forgave me. Brothers and sisters, the gospel must be reflected in our wealth. No matter how big or how small, no matter how minimal you may have in your bank account or almost borderline redlining it, it must be reflected in your wealth, in our spending, in our investing. Because to ignore the gospel in our riches is to invite judgment. In light of our Thanksgiving Christmas season, I encourage you all not to begin, not just a season, but a lifestyle of faithful stewardship. Amen? A lifestyle of faithful stewardship with your time, talent, and money. Ask yourself today, how can I invest more into the kingdom of God? Our last point is this. How we make our wealth will either help serve God or bring judgment upon us. Now, I went to a track and auto store not too long ago. And there was this aisle dedicated to bling. I think you know what I'm talking about for those of you who have gone there. Bling is essentially, in the automotive context, shiny, chrome-like things you stick on your car to enhance the look. It's awful. Now, there's this one thing that caught my eye. <clears throat> there were chrome rims, and they, they spun. So I just stood there for five minutes just going, seeing how long I can beat my previous record. That's how I spend my time, by the way, people. <clears throat> how great was that? But here's the thing. I, I got that thing, and I kind of touched it. I kind of bent it. Now, here's the thing. You're not supposed to be able to bend metal. This just goes to show that it's, it's, not, it's not metal. It's plastic. I'm sure if you went over a speed bump, it would probably knock off. Within the realm of our Christian faith and wealth, it is also possible that behind the large sums of money that we make or even donate, that there's still something not right or fake that would warrant judgment from God. Verse 4 through 6 talks about how wealth that undermines justice will bring judgment upon us. So here, James is not talking about how our wealth is used, but rather how it's gained. In verse 4, we read that wealth here is gained at the expense of employees it's wealth that should have been paid in wages to them, but somehow was fraudulently withheld. Maybe you don't have people working for you, but this can apply whenever you use any type of service in your life. You can pay, and you pay less than what's fair. And we do this all the time. We always want that good discount, don't we? I'm not saying you can't go to the sales section, but what we try to do is this. We try to pay as little as we can get away with. Now, we have a standard tipping system, don't we? Now, don't get me started on tipping and how the employer should really be responsible to make sure his or her employee are paid a livable wage. But the tipping standard is what? 15%. 15%. But what we do is this, and, I've, and I admit I've joked around this by saying this in the face of bad service. I said, oh, this horrible service, this shall be reflected on their tip. We've all said that. I've said that. But here's the thing. We need to tip at least 15%. At least 15%. Wait, waiters, can I hear an amen? Anyone here? Serving? No one? Okay. <clears throat> tip more for better service, but never tip less. Don't tip less. 
I was so angry when I saw the check that went viral of, of an alleged minister who put on the tip line, I give my tithe to God, and then left the restaurant without tipping the waiter. It made me cringe. Immediately, the comments below erupted with, tip, with uh, the typical, oh, these holy roller Christians always, always saying give, but they never give themselves. Man, I hate hypocrisy and organized religion. See, that's a case of non-gospel-centered expense. Now, God says something amazing in verse 6. He equates this stealing or not compensating well to that of murder. <laughs> to that of murder. How in the world is this similar to murder? Because to withhold pay is to take away a piece of that person's life without compensation. In an almost fractional way, to withhold just pay or whatever is due is to condemn him or her to lose a little bit of their life for the sake of my convenience a little bit at a time. This is to steal life, robbery of life. This is murder. Who is it then that we're murdering? This applies to the person who's working every day, spending their life every day to serve their society, the community, my business, their, their business, my success, whatever, my enjoyments, while I live in self-indulgence and luxury. So here's the thing. If you owe money to someone and you're fine right now, pay them back. Okay? Pay them back. Turn to your neighbor and say this. Pay me back. <laughs> Now, let me end with this, brothers and sisters. <clears throat> we like to think that being just is giving one another what they deserve. If you don't work as much, you get paid less. If you work overtime, you'll get more. That seems fair. But this is why we're called to give more, even if it's at our expense and even if it's at our inconvenience, because here's the thing. God did that with us. In Matthew 20, there was a master who owned a vineyard. He needed a bunch of workers to help him out, to tend to it. So early in the day, he found someone and he promised, you know what, I'll pay you a day's wage. The guy's like, sweet, I'll do it. So he began working. A few hours later, the master found another person and promised the same thing. Then again, later on, towards the end of the day, the master went out and found another person and promised him the same exact thing and hired him. And so at the day's end, when they all gathered together, the three men, and they're ready to receive their payment, their day's wage, all the men who worked longer hours thought they'd get paid more. But realizing that they didn't and that the master gave equal pay to every single person from the guy who worked 10 hours and the guy who worked 6 hours and even the guy who only worked 1 hour, the guys who worked longer got a bit mad. They grumbled at the master. How come the guy who worked only 1 hour made just as much as we did? That's not fair. We were the ones in the scorching heat, and I took all the brunt of all the work. And the master said, like, I'm giving you what I've already promised. I can choose to give to the last worker what I choose to give. Am I not allowed to do that? So are you, in fact, mad at my generosity? Brothers and sisters, friends, if you think about this, none of us deserve all that much from God. In fact, we're quite ill-deserving in fact, there should be things taken away from us. In fact, our lives should be the payment for our sins. And yet God, he doesn't give us what we deserve. That's called mercy. 
And so in his mercy, he also extends grace. And like the master in this parable, God has given each and every single one of us something that we do not deserve. Jesus is the act of God's grace to all of us here right now. Because I know I don't deserve Jesus. We don't deserve Jesus. And yet in faith, we are able to have all of him. You see, all that we have, as hard as you've worked, as many hours that you studied, and all the investing you've done, everything is God's. And all that we have is not ours, and we're not owed it either. And yet for some reason, we hoard our riches, we confiscate and we keep our money close to our chest, unwilling to even part with it, let alone give it to someone who may be in need. The reason why Jesus spoke so much on money is because if we were to be honest, guys, money is one of ours, if not our main idol. It is. The reason we give to the church is because the church is reliant on the faithful financial stewardship of its members. I've just received word uh, that yesterday our new boiler blew up. Thank the Lord that nothing explosive really happened, but it blew up, it, it malfunctioned, it's dead now. Therefore, the entire left wing, the entire main sanctuary, and everything below it and above it are without heater, without heat. In other words, it's cold. The chapel here relies on different sources, so we're fine, but it's moments like this, as well as our vision of sending out missionaries and equipping them with every tool they need to share the gospel, that our faithful stewardship is needed. Amen? But not only that, on a personal level, our reluctance to give simply gives more evidence of our lack of faith in God's provision. Period. I wonder how many of us actually have read the words to that offering song we sing every week. You see, giving isn't done because God's desperate for your cash. No, rather, giving or lack thereof exposes our heart's condition. Exposes your heart's condition. Giving and trusting God with our resources and investing our wealth into lives of fellow brothers and sisters and even unbelievers indicate our trust in God and our trust in God's coming kingdom. Do you trust God that he is Jehovah Jireh? You see, God, he's not desperate for your money. You think that just because we have pastors or televangelists, and don't get me started on those guys either, but you have pastors come up and saying, talk about money every so often. That you're saying, the church is always trying to leech from me. Man, does God really need my money? No, he does not need your money, but he wants you. He is not desperate for your money, but he is desperate for you. And it just so happens that money tends to be in the way of getting you. You can either worship money, people, or you can worship God with money. You can either say, God, you come first in my life, and no matter how rocky my life gets, no matter when it seems like I have absolutely nothing to ever offer, there's no savings, nothing, I will still trust, Father, I will do everything I can to work, to serve, to do what I can, but also trust in your provision. You will not give everything I want, but Lord, I trust that you will give everything I need. Because you are my God, and I'm your child. Amen? All right, let's pray. This passage really highlights a particular point, and it's not just about give or wealth. 
It's about your heart. As a pastor, I have to make sure, and I have experienced this firsthand, that when I give, I give from the bottom of my heart, and I give even when it hurts. Like, how can we say to God, yes, Lord, I trust you with my salvation. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Lord, yes, I thank you for answering my prayers and listening to my prayers, for you are God who is all-hearing and all-present and all-powerful. But, Lord, um, I need this money, so I can't trust you enough to give it to you. There's this spiritual inconsistency then. If you believe that God is God, then you must believe that God is also the provider. And maybe that's where you're at right now in your life. I tend to find that people who are struggling a lot with their resources are, A, just being foolish with their spending and not managing it. It has nothing to do with God, but it's just everything to do with their poor management. Or B, that you're not giving to the Lord. You see, God, he, the resources that we get is definitely by his grace, but from my experience also, it seems that God tends to bless those who like to bless others. That God is all about that channel of life. When life pours in, he expects life to pour out of you too, and unto others. But if you're trying to just hoard it and keep it, like why would God bless you, you know? So this is a time of prayer where I would hope that you would just evaluate your heart and say, God, you know where I stand with money. You know where I stand with my lack of trust. You know how hard my financial life is right now. You know how hard it is for me to lean on you. Give me more faith. Give me more faith, Lord. Let's take a moment here and just pray, okay? And just expose your heart to God and see where you're at. Let's pray.